For our scripture reading this morning, we are going to turn to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, and we're going to read, there's about um, 22 verses in the chapter. We're going to read through the 22 verses, but we're going to focus especially on the first five verses. Or no, the first, I'm sorry, the first eight verses. Uh, So Genesis 28, verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Abraham for to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan, Padan Aram, to Laban the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Haram to take himself a wife from there. And that, as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Badan Aram. Also Esau saw that uh, the daughters of Canaan Uh, did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, and the sister of Nabahoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set And he took one of the stones of that place and put it uh, at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angel of the Lord, the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I do not know it. Uh, And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place uh, Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. 
Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. May God, God's name be blessed by this uh, reading and by our consideration uh, of this text. <clears throat> now the title of the message today is Wives and Faith. And we have often over the years exhorted the congregation to instill in their children a desire and uh, uh, the necessity of marrying and choosing people to marry in the faith. Lest you think that this is just a New Testament idea or something that is in the mind of an elder or pastor here and there, we turn to this text this morning and show how this is an old covenant idea, that this is part and parcel with the essence of covenant life. That um, if we disregard this, we imperil ourselves. Now we know, especially coming through COVID like we have, we know what it is to be somewhat threatened by a disease, by something more physical or something more having to do with medicine. And we, we've heard of many, many people who have been imperiled by COVID, especially the, the variety from 2020. We saw it. We felt it. We, church was closed for a number of months. And all over America, people recoiled from their normal activities because, out of fear from this thing. So if we could make an analogy between that peril and the peril of which we speak of today, you would have a, a, a pretty rational, cool, calm, collect, and realistic view of the peril that we face as families if we do not place our religious sentiments at the forefront of our family's life. And if our, if our religious sentiments, if our love of God is at the core and the forefront of our family's life, then our choice of a spouse, if we're children growing up in Christian families, our choice of a spouse must be seen as absolutely essential. Now, the problem is we grow up, we're younger, we start out younger, and we just can't grasp all of the perils that are out there. It's not like we, uh, it's not like we are experts in virology in, in terms of the COVID peril. It's not like we know everything. It's not like our experience embraces all of that and brings it in close to our minds so that we can apply it to our lives. It's not like we understand the ins and the outs of spiritual peril. And it's at that point where it, it, the man is blessed and the woman is blessed if they trust in the Lord and walk in his ways. You think of the book of Proverbs. We used to, we used to do Proverbs devotionals when we had a home school and when the boys were younger. And the, the 31 chapters of Proverbs, we would do a different chapter every day. And especially early on, the first five, six chapters of Proverbs, they, it really focuses on um, 
our love lives and the fact that uh, unbelieving women can really be seductive, uh, not just in a superficial way or a momentary way, but seductive of our whole lives. And the, and the writer of the Proverbs says that he, he warns the young people that to stay away from uh, the, the non-covenantal woman, the woman of loose character. Stay away from her because she can ruin your life, literally ruin your whole life. I mean, we can say these words. We can even shout these words. But will they have an impact upon our hearts and our lives? Do we really believe that the peril of choosing an ungodly husband or wife can be so drastic as that? I can tell you as a, a pastor who's counseled a lot of people over the years that I've seen uh, this peril worked out. And uh, every once in a while, you'll see someone, uh, couples who were either both unbelievers or uh, one of them was a believer, and they, out of complete naivete, they chose a husband or wife that was not of the faith, and, uh, and uh, God in his mercy blessed them. But not too often, usually the, the norm is that uh, children that marry in that light, they tend to, it's, this tends to be a wedge in, in the midst of their lives. And instead of growing closer and closer together, that wedge gets inserted or pounded in more and more and more until husband and wife are driven away from each other. It's a very, very serious thing. And we see that here in this story of Isaac, Isaac, uh, uh, commanding his son in a, both a negative and a positive way. Don't do this, do that. Don't marry one of the pagan women of the area, uh, one of the Canaanite women. You must go back to your larger family in Haran, Padam Haran, and um, find a wife there. And so um, we see uh, that this working its way out. Now, in verse 1, we see the, the context of this idea that, that uh, unbelieving spouses befoul the faith or contaminate the faith or corrupt the faith of those who are believers. Uh, we see way back in chapter 26 at the end, verse 34, it says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of ben uh, Barry the Hittite and Basemeth, Basemeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were and there and they were a grief uh, of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So um, we don't know exactly what the context of this was. Did did Isaac just leave off and not make this so clear to Esau? Did he was Esau, was Esau merely headstrong and? wanted to do his own thing regardless of what his parents said, but whatever, he chose for himself, Canaanite wives, and uh, they were a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. As they, as they began their married life together, they could just see in the habits of the women. These women did not have godly covenantal habits. And they were seductive to uh, Esau, not so much sexually as culturally. They, would, they were drawing Esau away from his cultural covenantal roots of the faith. And so the more they saw this, they could just see it. They could just see how the children and the parents, they could just see this breakdown of the family being constructed and built up and developed. 
and there was nothing that they could do about it. Um, again, in, in chapter 27, verse 46, uh, Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Hath. Now, the daughters of Hath were some of these Canaanite, uh, the Canaanite, the, the parents and their daughters. And she said, um, uh, if Jacob takes the wife of the daughters of Heth like these, who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Rebekah had the insight, the covenantal spiritual insight to see that these marital relationships, these family developments, and we're preaching a series here on the family, she had the insight to see that there was a death spiral involved in Esau's life. At this point, uh, he was still Esau. He was still hanging around his father and their people. But ultimately, the, his, his children, the Edomites, separated and became totally separate from the Israelites and became persecutors of Israel. So when that wedge between faith and unfaith gets embedded in our families, it doesn't improve. It just gets worse and worse and worse. The, the wedge sinks deeper and deeper and deeper, separating the, the family members, those of faith and those from, from non-faith. And so based on that, verse 28 starts, and it says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Badan Haram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take for yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, Laban your mother's brother. So uh, along the way here, um, Isaac and Rebekah are talking. They're commiserating. They're watching what's happening to their family. And they can see that if this continues... The godly family will be lost from the earth. The, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will not come to pass. God's covenant will not come to pass. They must make a U-turn. They must make a reversal of their lifestyle in order that this covenant between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come to fruition. God has made his commandment, but we are responsible as people to obey him to a certain point or we cannot expect his promises to come to pass. God will always work out his will in his own due time, but it may not involve us. We may be spun out or cast off. As it says, Israel was cast off in the book of Romans because of their lack of faith, because of their lack of obedience. So unbelieving spouses befall the faith, and, um, and uh, Isaac and Rebekah became aware of this, and so they took action. Now, point two is that, um, that we see where Isaac's repentance and faith really regarding the laxity of Esau and his wives, uh, that, that Isaac really made an, a, a U-turn here. We see in verse two that he says, Arise, go to Padam Haram, to the house of Bethuel. So he sees that there's a negative to not do one thing, and then there's a positive to do the other, and uh, we don't. It's not fully explained. We don't know all the where, the whys and the wherefores or the in, ins and outs. But Esau, whereas he had not done this with Esau, Isaac did this with Jacob, and he insisted at this point uh, uh, that uh, that this would that this would uh, 
uh, go forward. So in Esau's life, we see a kind of a casual, um, not very attentive view of spiritual things. Uh, for Esau really didn't see the genius of theology in one's life. He, as he made his various decisions, his mind and his heart was not arrested with a necessity to have a covenant family, to, to place the love of God first and foremost in his family's life. They, these things just didn't impress themselves upon him. And so he was allowed to just drift with the times, drift with the culture of that day. And if we do not have a purposeful view in our minds of the way of the covenant, of the way of the Lord, if we do not have a very purposeful understanding of this, then what will be the alternative for us except to drift along and be caught up with the culture? And then 10, 20, 30 years later, we look back and we see that our whole life has been a waste. I think I've told you before that my maternal grandfather came to that conclusion. My mother had been reared by grandparents that were in the faith. She was in the faith. She'd married a, a man, my father, who was of the faith. They weren't totally mature, but they, they, they definitely were of the faith, and they saw the necessity of that. And uh, then later on in life, uh, my grandfather came back. He had cancer, came back and lived with my mom and dad. And um, my mom got him reading the Bible. I've told you before the story. One day he came down and he said, Jenny, it was my mother's name. He said, Jenny, it looks like I've wasted my whole life, haven't I? And she said, well, Dad, you haven't done too good. Uh, and uh, he had he'd lived most of his life away from his family. He'd been a band leader and a golf pro and just had not been a, a real warm, uh, care, caring father. But So it's, it's a terrible thing to see that kind of thing about your life later on. Now, my grandfather's... In my, to, in my grandfather's favor, uh, he called upon the, having seen that, he called upon the name of the Lord. And he repented of his life to that point and uh, let my mother and dad uh, disciple him in, uh, in the last couple years of his life. But uh, very, very infrequently does that happen. Usually people just get harder and harder and harder. They, they become more and more autonomous, more and more rules unto themselves. They just don't see the need for the Lord in their lives. And so uh, Esau, at this point, he sees that this is not just, is just not going to work. So he says to uh, Isaac, I mean, to, to Jacob, don't do this, do this. And so he points uh, Esau, I mean, he points Jacob back to uh, the land of his forefathers to find a wife in the larger family from which he came. Now, the third point we see as it develops here in verses three, three and four, we see where uh, the theology of the Lord and the sociology of the Lord kind of come together. Because here we are talking about the family. We're talking about getting a, a godly wife for Jacob. And then in verse 3 and 4, um, Isaac pronounces this benediction uh, or ascription upon Jacob and the enterprise upon which he is sending him. He says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of the peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham. 
to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to you. Now, what in the world, you see, does, what does this theology of verses 3 and 4, what does that have to do with the, the family and admonitions of verses 1 and 2? A lot of people just read through there and they don't see the connection. But these scriptures are these scriptures are contiguous for a reason. They're right next to each other. What this indicates is that the sociology of the family, the, the organization of the family, the development of the family, which we might call so, the sociology of the family, it, it's showing that the sociology is directly linked to the theology of the family. And that the theology of the family is directly linked to the sociology of the family. This is what so many evangelicals today don't understand. The, these doctrines of, of marrying within the faith are not really articulated today in the evangelical church. The, the, they, they aren't, the, most of them are not covenant theologians. That is, they don't, they're not so aware of, of how important the Bible says our being aware of the covenant that we're in is made. And so they just take the idea of the covenant or covenant life, they just take that very casually as if it's not all that important. But we who are students of the Old Testament, we who sing the Psalms, and it's, it's argued continuously from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, it's argued how important it is that this division between faith and non-faith is kept. God knows the way of the righteous, it says in Psalm 1, but the way of the wicked shall perish. And so there are two covenants. There's the covenant with Jehovah God, and there's the covenant that man just makes with himself, where man runs his own life. Who runs your life? Is it you or is it God? Whose voice are you paying attention to? The little, little voice in your own mind or the voice thundering from the living God? And verses, verses 3 and 4 bring out the idea that your family choices, especially this choice of, of a husband or a wife, is really central to whether you will be theologically blessed in the future. Isaac repeats this covenantal language of blessing, and he, he relates that or attaches that to Jacob's enterprise of finding a believing wife for himself. So you see where it's directly connected. You see where the sociology is directly connected to the theology. You see where the theology, the promises of the theology, are related to the practical decisions that we make in our lives. Now the proof of this, point four, the proof of this is, is proved in, by its negative, <laughs> when we get to when we get to uh, verse eight, verse six, we get the mind of Esau, and this is so precious in the in the sense of truth. So Esau is a as an observer of all that's going on in his family, and it says in verse six, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to take himself. A wife from there. And then as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Well, what's, what's Esau? <laughs> what has Esau done? He's taken a wife from the daughters of Canaan. So Esau's the observer. What is he thinking about this? Well, this, the scripture here tells you what was going on in his mind. He's thinking, my dad said this to Jacob. <laughs> and, uh, he said there was going to be blessing there. And he said, don't do what, uh, don't do this. Don't do it. Be. 
You know, do A, not B. And then he's thinking to himself, but I did B. <laughs> you know, what does that say about me and my future? Uh, and then verse 7, verse 6 says, Esau saw that. And then verse 7 says, and Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8 says, Esau also saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. We could add here parenthetically, nor his mother, Rebecca. So Esau, now, so Esau realizes, I think I've done something wrong here. So what does he do to remedy the situation? <laughs> he doesn't go to the Canaanites. He, he, does, he does one step better. He goes to the, the family of Ishmael. Now, where did Ishmael come from? Ishmael came from Hagar, who was what? An Egyptian. And the blessings were, it, it was very clear in the family story that the blessings of God, Jehovah God, were not going to go through the Egyptians or go through Hagar. And in fact, Hagar and Ishmael were driven away. Now, God took care of them after a fashion, but the, the covenant blessings were not on Hagar and Ishmael. So what does Esau do? He goes to his half-breed brother, you know, the, when, I, when I say half-breed, I'm not thinking so much of genetics, but I'm thinking of theology. Ishmael and Hagar were very borderline. They, they lived with Abraham, but they were not of Abraham's line. They were not, uh, they, they were not spiritually sensitive to the, the great doctrines of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Esau is going to repent. And he repents by walking halfway back to where he should have gone all the way back. First of all, he should have realized that he'd made some huge mistakes and he should have started a major evangelism campaign within his family, exhorting his, his wives and whatever children he had, exhorting them that they must follow in the way of Abraham, that they had been gone, they'd been going the wrong way. Now they must go the right way. He should have repented and, and, and not added wives, and it, it says that it's almost, uh, it's ironically humorous that it, that it says that he, um, <clears throat> that he, in verse, the end of verse 9, it says, so he added this, his wife, in addition to the wives he already had. So it's just like one, one cont contaminating factor, one problem after another that Esau is adding to his life. Esau is totally confused. And we can see that by the decisions that he makes and the ways that, that he's going. And so what does the, by in its negative sense, what does this prove? This proves, it proves exactly what Isaac was saying and what Rebecca had felt. It's proving the positive by the negative. And Esau's half-hearted response um, just shows the confusion of mind that he had. Now, the, the second part of this text, I'm not going to speak uh, that much about it. This is, if we, were, if we were not focusing on the family, the second part of the text is probably what we would focus upon because it's this great uh, theophany, this great vision that God gives Jacob while he's asleep at the night where he sees this ladder going up to the heavens and angels ascending and descending on the ladder, showing, showing promise or giving promise that there was a way for mankind to get to heaven if they would depend on God's provision. And he's dreaming this in his dream. Now, uh, like I said, we would focus on this. We're not going to focus on that now. 
it, we're just going to basically pass it by lightly. It's a, but it, it's typically the normal text that we would speak on from this place. But what it does show is the the blessing. It gives us this this very down to earth, concrete exhortation to marry in the faith, to marry believers and believers. That's the paradigm from the creation. When Adam and Eve married, when God formed Eve of the rib of Adam, they were both believers. They were both they both had faith in the living God. That's the paradigm for a marriage. One man marries one woman of faith, that they both are people of faith. That's the paradigm. All these other examples that men have invented are totally fraudulent. Today we're celebrating homosexuality as if that was superior to heterosexuality. But I've point, I pointed out before, if that would be univer, if that behavior would be universalized, the whole race would vanish in one generation. Because there might be a few people here and there that would try artificial insemination uh, in their in their homosexual mate to uh, to get to obtain or some artificial instead if there were two men they might they might you know try to buy a baby from two women or something you know but the, we're having enough trouble today maintaining our population in the west here we're already going downhill europe has practically they're saying that in 20 or 30 years all of these european cultures are going to be they're going to disappear because they're not having any children guess who is having children the Islamic peoples that they're importing into their countries. So when you go to Paris, you're not, you're not going to see Joe Frenchy or Francois. Francois. You're going to see uh, Mohammed or, or uh, somebody else. And you go to Denmark or you go to Germany, and you're going to have the same phenomenon. Because these people, they think that somehow they're going to obtain God's blessing by disobeying the paradigm that he gave them in the book of Genesis. It's foolish. It's wanton foolishness. It's total confusion. And we see that the way to avoid that is to marry wives of the covenant, women, young girls of the covenant that understand how things are to be. And you start off your life like that and you you have uh, the bride of your youth, and the you know the, the young the young groom and the young bride. They don't they know very little in some senses, but they know enough to to get to dot their eyes and cross their t's, and they learn together, and they become more mature together, and they grow in their faith together. Uh, as they honor their fathers and their mothers, and their fathers and mothers' faith, they themselves develop their own faith, and so the covenant life is transferred or communicated from one generation to the next and people the end result is that people love the lord and that uh, they have spiritual life and that it's a wonderful relationship and a wonderful phenomenon it's wonderful to see young men and women who of the faith marry together we know that they they we know how little they know at that age but as they learn together, how wonderful it is to watch them and how, how much we can hold on to the promise that God will work with them and will bless them. Now, as I, as I close, I was thinking about, the, in terms of the, the, beauty, the beauty of this idea, I was thinking how, how Christ perfects this in his relationships. We are called 
The church is called the bride of Christ. Is it not? The bride of Christ. We, though, though we are both men and women, uh, we are classified as the bride, and our Lord Jesus Christ is classified as the groom. And so, as I th- was thinking of the appropriateness, what God is saying here about uh, Jacob and his future wife, Rachel, so I was thinking about that, I, I was thinking, wow, how, how, this, this, this is such a, presents such a lovely picture, or God presents such a lovely picture to us of the, the covenantal love and the covenantal purity of his groom and the purity with which he uh, develops us in terms of the righteousness of Christ. So that we, as we come together uh, later on, there's, there's a great possibility for us. In the Song of Solomon, you get a picture of this in the very first chapter, where in verse 2, it says, Let him, this is, the, this is the bride speaking. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. So this looks at the groom coming to the bride and she sees him in his perfection. Commentators have said this this portends of the perfection of Christ. The groom as he would come to his bride and his bride has been made perfect not in and of herself, but because she wears the garments that have been supplied for her. And so it's a perfect picture of marriage based upon the supply of the Lord, the bounty and the blessings of the Lord. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. What are the good ointments of Christ? They are his perfections, his righteousness, his goodness, his love, his constancy, his fealty. And so she sees this this groom coming to her, and she says, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. (laughs) She says, take me away. I'm ready to go. Because you are so beautiful and so lovely in your comeliness. And there are portions of the song where he, he sings about his wife and her beauty. And her love. Our Lord Jesus Christ has made us beautiful in Himself. He has given us a mantle of righteousness to wrap ourselves up in. He has paid the penalty for our sins so that they cannot separate us from the God. He has made us perfect. He's made us perfect. He's perfected us to be His bride, His appropriate bride, not a bride of filth like Hosea received. But with that same commitment to take care of that bride, our Lord Jesus Christ makes us his bride. We can see his perfections as we look at him, his beauty. And in his ministry, we can see his perfections on us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians verse 7, or chapter 7, he says, we no longer think of each other or ourselves according to the flesh, but now we behold each other in the spirit. We have a sense of our beauty, the beauty that Christ has enabled us to have. And so here we have this great marriage, the marriage feast of the lamb where he is united with his, uh, with his bride. And we see that that flows out of this earlier exhortation that uh, Isaac suddenly became aware of. Isaac and Rebekah, as they talked together, husband and wife, in their older years, 
and they, they, they commiserated over the terrible situation they saw in Isaac's uh, in Esau's side of the, the clan. And they said, we must not repeat this. In terms, of, in terms of Jacob, he must find himself a wife. And the, the, next, uh, the next chapter tells something of the wonder, the beauty of the way God was with uh, Jacob as he went back there to find his bride. The lovely way in which God supervised his meeting uh, Rachel and, and uh, becoming one with her.